when it comes to stocks with a durable competitive advantage, would you rather be a tortoise or a hare? Let's find out next. Welcome to the sixth episode of Fundamentals, an equity-focused series on the Federated Hermes podcast channel. I'm Ethan Devitt, Head of Investment Ireland at the firm. On the fifth episode of Fundamentals, I was joined by Gary Greenberg, Head of Global Emerging Markets, where we discussed whether investors can adapt to the new climate normal. Let's remind ourselves of what he had to say. We think we've reached the point of no return on global warming, uh, even though um it's very important for us to continue, it's critically important for us to continue efforts to reduce emissions and, and probably uh, reverse emissions. Uh, even if we do reverse uh, emissions in, in the near term, which is highly unlikely, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere means that uh, the, the planet is going to continue to warm. And uh, this is this is very serious. Um, we don't realize many of us just don't realize how sensitive even our bodies are to um, to uh, warmer climates. But looking at the macro, at two degrees, fast melting ice sheets are going to collapse. Water scarcity is going to continue uh, to threaten people. Probably 400 million more people than today. Major cities in the equatorial band are going to become increasingly unlivable. Heat waves will kill thousands. At three degrees, Southern Europe, Central America, Caribbean, and North Africa are going to be subject to permanent drought. Wildfires uh, will burn twice the average annual land area burned in the Mediterranean last year, and six times the amount in North America. If we get to four degrees, river flooding in Bangladesh will grow uh, about 20 times in India. 30 times and 60 times in the UK. This could cost as high as $600 trillion. So these are issues which mean that we need to adapt, not just work on mitigation. Well, since we recorded that podcast, we've seen a summer like no other. Not only have we continued to cope with the ramifications of a global pandemic, we've seen some of these climate factors that Gary referred to, such as a global heat wave and the forest fires now raging in California. On the market side, we're also seeing some mixed messages. We're seeing t- soaring tech stocks, while case numbers of COVID-19 mount in Europe and the US. While school re-entry nears and countries, are, in, at least in Europe, are on again and off again a quarantine list as local outbreaks continue to occur, markets seem to be more focused on the emergence of COVID-19 therapies, such as convalescent plasma and maybe a fast-track vaccine, with sentiment notably skewed towards optimism. Today, I'm joined by Mark Sherlock, Head of U.S. Equities and Lead Portfolio Manager of our U.S. SMID Capability, and Alex Knox, a Portfolio Manager for U.S. Equities. Welcome, Mark and Alex. Hello. Hi. Before we dive into the U.S. SMID Capability, let's begin with your personal journey. Maybe we'll start with Alex. Hello. I'm, I'm a believer in investing and joined somewhat accidentally into um, investing. Firstly, with a maths background, I went straight into fund management, but then decided to broaden my experience whilst um, 
whilst qualifying as an accountant, I did a number of strategy consulting projects, which were interesting. And that included writing business plans for a number of dot-com startups, which naturally read, led to a smaller company's role. Um, first as a fund manager in UK small and mid cap via a sell side role at an American bank. And then having had a career break, um, whilst my children were really small, I missed investing and sought out uh, what I think is a sort of pure investment role at Federated Hermes. I was attracted to the US small and mid-cap universe because it's an enormous uh, opportunity set. Um, the US is 10 times the size of the UK market and hence a very large opportunity set, which also garnered low attention from the broker community. Um, and I had the ability to use an ACA for qualification um, and you use a broad variety of potential investments to invest within my circle of competence. Thank you for sharing that. And Mark, what was your journey into investment? Well, uh, like Alex, I also came to investment through uh, accountancy, um, but don't, don't stop listening now. Um, uh, after four years uh, doing, doing accountancy and qualifying, I moved into uh, small and mid-cap investing in, uh, in the UK space, uh, eventually um, joining the US uh, SMID small and mid-cap team here at Federated Hermes uh, in, in around 2009. Um, took up the lead portfolio manager role uh, in 2013. Um, and as Alex says, uh, feel very privileged to be working in, in an asset class like US SMID. Um, huge opportunity set um, and really not very well covered. So significant opportunity to add alpha. Let's dig in a little bit to that opportunity set and to the opportunity in US SMID. I'd be particularly interested in hearing how that opportunity has evolved perhaps over the last decade, as it is my perception that perhaps there is less coverage of some of these SMID stocks as research teams have been perhaps rationalized, um, perhaps as cost cutting has, has taken effect. Maybe can we start with um, your philosophy and approach and, and why you think it's an attractive area? Sure. Well, I think you're absolutely right. And some of the points that you make are, are, are spot on. Um, in terms of uh, smaller mid cap, so what we look at, to be clear, um, is, in, uh, is contained in an index, the Russell 2500, which in simple terms is everything that is not the S&P 500. Um, as the name suggests, it's two and a half thousand stocks. Um, and uh, the, 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 the strategy that we run contains around 60 stocks. Um, I think what's, what, what's, what our experience has been over the last decade or so um, is very much, as you suggest, that the broker community has shrunk. Um, many of the big banks come in to uh, start broking small and mid-cap stocks and perhaps realise they can't make as much money in it as they thought uh, and, and exit that business. Um, so we've seen a, a, number of the, a number of those banks come and go. Uh, we're fortunate enough to have a very stable bank of of, of sell-side uh, firms that we work with. They're typically smaller in size, so they may be regional uh, or SMID specialists. Um, but really, they are of great value to us, uh, given their, the depth of knowledge um, that, that some of these analysts have. They've followed stocks for 10, 20 years, um, and of course, are a valuable source of, 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 of information. In terms of how we run uh, uh, the money and how we choose to invest in this, in this asset class, it's perhaps different to some of the uh, perceptions out there. I think uh, often people think that small and mid caps 
um, you know, it's a, it's, it's somewhat of a, of a, of a sort of a, a casino, some might even say, uh, where you place your bets and keep your fingers crossed. Uh, that's about as far away from how we try and run uh, the money as it's possible to imagine. Um, we feel that uh, the best way to make money is to focus on on companies uh, with durable competitive advantages. So that is a barrier to entry. Um, uh, what is it that the company does different from the competition and how uh, how sustainable is that? That's really what we spend a lot of our time uh, focusing on. Um, often our investments can be in what might be considered quite dull market areas. So we have investments in recycled car parts and in insurance. Um, these are not the things you necessarily see on the front of the Wall Street Journal. Um, however, they, uh, over time, uh, make some fantastic investments, um, uh, as we think we can evidence looking back over the, the time period that we've been managing money. Um, largely because, and this is an intentional strategy, it doesn't draw new capital in. So if you have an exciting new idea, um, you, you, you know, often that can attract new capital uh, and the promised returns are eroded away. And some of these uh, businesses that we invest in, which often fly under the radar, um, and uh, the new capital isn't attracted in, which means that uh, investors can benefit from really good returns over a multi-year period. So I suppose if you were to try and encapsulate uh, our philosophy with regards to investing in this, in this asset class, it's really that the tortoise beats the hare. Um, but ultimately, slow and steady wins the race. Um, so just to give you an example of a theoretical business uh, that we might own, um, a model that we use is something called the 5, 10, 15 model. Uh, and that's really looking for a company that can grow top line at 5%. Or well, for many uh, in this asset class, that would be considered far too dull to be, uh, to, to be worth bothering with. Uh, we're fine about that as long as this, these companies can then grow EBIT at around 10% and EPS at around 15%. Um, that's a sustainable uh, level of return which can pertain uh, for many years. And maybe just turning to Alex, it, that all of this I'm sure has been, these have been strong fundamentals of this asset class that have persisted for some time. But how have small and mid-cap stocks weathered the recent storm compared to their large cap brethren, which seem to be getting all the attention, all the momentum, is there a fundamental difference as to how a small and mid-cap company copes with a crisis such as the COVID-19 induced one? Well, it's an interesting um, thing. Uh, it's a bit of a tale of two markets out there at the moment. You have the haves, the have-nots and the have-yots. Um, the extent of bifurcation is fairly well um, publicised uh, by commentators on the market. So, for example, you know, the top five companies, mega caps in the S&P are now, you know, over 21% of the um, overall S&P index. However, if you had stripped out the performance of those top five companies, the S&P would still be down, um, I think, around about high, high single digit percentage at, at the current levels. So, it looks actually even worse uh, for the small caps um, because some of those um, small caps, uh, a large proportion of the small caps are, are down, you know, between 25 and 30 percent. So there has been a bifurcation in the performance of individual stocks. I'd also add at, a, at an index level, um, you know, the smaller mid caps typically trade on a premium um, of around 20% to the S&P if you look at forward PE earnings uh, ratios. Um, 
Now that's that's because they, this is a structurally higher growth asset class um, than 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 the S and P in simple terms. Um, you know, if if, if you're a, an S and P constituent, it's hard to grow top line sustainably above, let's call it sort of worldwide GDP. Obviously, if you're a smaller mid cap business, you can grow much more uh, and much quicker than that by taking market share. So. Typically, as I say, uh, SMID companies trade at around a 20% premium to the S&P. Now, that premium has shrunk right back um, over the last uh, few months. Um, and, and now SMID companies only trade at a modest um, uh, a premium to, to large cap. And really, the concern there is um, to do with the, you know, the, the, the fundamentals. The economic fundamentals have never been um, less clear. There is clearly a concern. Um, of a significant dip in the global economy. Um, and the perception is that uh, small and mid-cap companies uh, will be less able to deal with that sort of an environment, um, as typically they are higher levered, um, they, carry, you know, they carry more debt um, uh, on their balance sheets. Now, while that, you know, that, 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 that may be an opportunity potentially um i would say within within the the federated hermes um us smid uh, really what what we carry is a, is, a, is is companies with significantly lower debt than the markets and, and indeed they are for those that are mathematicians uh, two standard deviations um below uh, the market in terms of debt in simple terms that means we have companies with a lot less debt than the than the broader market and so we don't feel um that, uh, that, 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 that necessarily uh, small and mid-cap companies uh, should all be placed in, in one bucket. There are plenty of high-quality businesses out there uh, with low debt. So um, I would say there is a, you know, the, the, that, that premium uh, that SMID typically trades at has been eroded over concerns um, due, to, due to COVID. And just digging in a little bit to your strategy, do you take a thematic approach to building a portfolio? No, um, typically we are uh, bottom-up investors. So um, I think part of part of life is knowing what you're good at and what you're not good at. Um, and, and to use Alex's word, words earlier in the podcast, you know, keeping within your sphere of competence. Um, I think the things that we feel we are less good at um, are making big sector bets um, and indeed uh, market timing. Um, so those we tend to de-emphasize. Of course, we are um, aware of, 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 of global trends um, and, and, and the broader global economy. But really what we're looking for is a bunch of idiosyncratic um, uh, risks um, through, as I say, a concentrated number of stocks, all of which we think have significant price appreciation potential um, and all of which are individual stories, um, which we, you know, are excited by. So um, typically, we would be we would be bottom up. Um, uh, and as I say, uh, uh, the companies that we look for are those companies with a, with a durable competitive advantage. So you, there will areas of the market that that you are unlikely to see us invest in. Um, for example, uh, biotechnology would be a, a, an area we have some exposure, but. Uh, but would be typically structurally underweight that area because if you think of a how we manage money and you compare that to a binary outcome biotech stock that is likely to be pre-profit um, often at our end of the market they'll just have a single product um, which either will be a great hit and cure a particular disease or more likely um, you know end up uh, falling 
failing one of the one of the, you know, sort of the, the the tests and really not being able to 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 to, to cure very much. Um, so. Can I just ask you, just for, sorry to interrupt, on um, biotech right now, because it does seem, are investors being discriminating right now in terms of biotech, or are they just hearing, as I mentioned before, some excitement around vaccines with perhaps shortened approval times, um, new therapeutic treatments, um, just a, just this massive drive to find almost at any cost, um, you know, something that, that can put an end to our misery on the COVID side, do you think that um, stock pickers are becoming discriminating among biotech stocks or is there a general momentum for that sector? There is huge momentum for that sector at the moment. Um, as you rightly suggest, you know, the, the world is on a hunt for the vaccine um, that, 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 that uh, you know, vaccinates us against, against COVID-19. Um, there, uh, you know, there, 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 there will be some winners from this, um, you know, it, 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 one might call excessive investment uh, in this area. Um, clearly, from a societal uh, point of view, one hopes the vaccine is found sooner rather than later. But there will also be uh, a huge number of disappointed investors um, who may well find that the price that they paid um, for their biotech investments, uh, you know, falls falls significantly, um, uh, and so the value of the you know, thus the value of their investment. So um, I think it, it, it is an exciting area, but I think there'll be a lot of um, disappointments um, over the coming 18 months. And just looking at other sectors that you focus on, um, I know it's broad-based, um, stock-specific. Um, can you take us through maybe some other sectors and some of the, the themes in those sectors, even though I know that you don't invest in a thematic way? Well, I think one of the key uh, one of the key elements of the market over the last few months has been the significant uh, divergence in performance between what one, what one might call growth stocks and value stocks. And I think that's worth a couple of minutes uh, uh, talking about. Um, so growth stocks, as the name suggests, um, would be in, 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 in those growthier types of, of sector. So you could put biotech, as we've just been discussing, in that uh, bucket. Likewise, um, some, some of the tech and early stage tech in particular. Um, conversely, value, just to be clear, some of the value sectors uh, would typically be the likes of um, the banks, uh, some of the more uh, industrial exposed sectors, uh, and so on. So within our portfolio, um, we have a broad spread of assets. It is a core portfolio. So we have some growth and we have some value uh, and, and, and many companies on, on the continuum between the two. I think what we've seen recently is this very significant performance of growth over value. And, um, you know, we all, we, we all see the same headlines, whether it's um, Apple surpassing a $2 trillion valuation, which, uh, as, as incidentally, makes it worth more than the entire FTSE 100 here in the UK, um, whether it's the new highs being made by, by Tesla, the significant outperformance of the NASDAQ. Um, it's all pointing in one direction, which is a great level of investor interest in technology um, and growth. And again, I think that's understandable given the very muted fundamentals, um, or very unclear fundamentals due to COVID. Um, it's much easier to, um, to to buy into what one might call a, a narrative stock, a story stock, uh, where you were never going to make any money this year anyway. The company was never going to make any money this year anyway. Um, it's all about five years out, and that dream, you know, lives on even through even through COVID. Um, equally, you know, we've seen some, you know, the most significant stimulus package um, 
the Federal Reserve um, has, has ever instigated. And so there's been a lot of uh, extra liquidity coming into the market um, at the same time as interest rates have fallen. So a combination of all of those things um, have, have driven up. The, the price of growth assets. Um, I think what's what's interesting is now going forward. You know, does the market leadership change or not? Um, there's lots of parallels uh, with regards to uh, tech. You know, when people talk about 2000 and so on, I, I, I actually think it's slightly different this this time. Um, uh, simply because you know the tech businesses are in a much stronger position. They are, if you think of the mega cap. Uh, tech businesses they've got good balance sheets good cash flows um, and so on um, that wasn't the case in 2000 that said you know current valuations um, really to us look look rich in many areas and uh, certainly in smaller mid caps uh, the tech businesses there many of them are being valued as as if they will be market leaders in five years time and and by definition you know only one of those let's call it four or five companies in each sector will be the market leader. So for us, we are cautious currently about um, about, about uh, making incremental uh, new tech investments here. Um, equally, we're very excited about the value uh, that we see in other parts of the portfolio um, across you know, a, a, a broader range of sectors, be that uh, you know, the financial, some of the more economically exposed sectors. Um, and, and so on. So with regards to themes within the portfolio, um, I think we try and have an evergreen strategy. We want to be people's allocation to this asset class um, uh, through, 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 through the cycle. Um, but currently, I would say some scepticism on tech valuations. Um, and I think some of our more interesting opportunities over the next three years from a returns perspective will come from, uh, from other sectors. And Alex, I'm turning to some of the sectors that you focus on in particular. What are you seeing as of interest there right now? Well, typically, the companies that I look at have um, been in health and life sciences. Um, and those companies as well have had their moment in the sun. Um, one of the examples that I have in mind, which sort of illustrates a little bit how we do gain exposure to biotechs, even though we don't invest in binary outcomes, is actually one company we invested in when its revenues were relatively lowly, 700 million, and there were only four sell-side analysts covering it at the time. Those were not the bulge bracket American banks and consensus view that this was that this company would face challenges and it wouldn't get any bigger um, in in the face of very powerful customer group. Um, it's the majority of its revenues at the time came from semiconductor segment. However, this was due to shift and 25% um, of the revenues came from healthcare. And this is where we try to gain exposure. It is actually, um, it had undergone somewhat of a transformation. So it developed a competence early on in automation tools for picking and packing wafers in a semiconductor environment. And the robots were particularly good at operating it with a high degree of accuracy in a sub-zero temperature environment and in a vacuum. And over the years, they added steps to this, such as washing and repacking and contamination control, for example. Um, and they adapted this, these robots to work in a sample, biological samples 
environment, storage and receival, retrieval of samples off-site. Um, in fact, in my earlier career as a strategy consultant, I'd worked at a major pharmaceutical company where literally the scientists had chest freezers full of compounds and biological samples, all were stored adjacent to their labs. They were difficult to access. And now, for example, um, a lot of we've had a resurgence in funding for life sciences generally over the last you know five years but um, particularly now in the face of covid and whilst um, the share prices of some of these companies have done well this one has flown somewhat under the radar it was a fairly high growth niche at the time and they were number one in this in this environment and an early mover but they are now the largest commercial storage facility in the US for biological sample management. And they're going back to what Mark was saying earlier about them being um, having high barriers to entry. These these um, the company is embedded into the workflow, the transportation and storage of the samples, embedded into what is arguably the pharmaceutical and new biotech companies IP. Um, and so therefore very difficult to displace and a consummately pretty attractive operating margin. And this is how we try to invest in uh, companies relatively early on when they haven't attracted such coverage. And so hence we get, you know, we, we're investing for the longer term. And so as the business transforms itself and then becomes um, widely publicized by the um, larger or Wall Street American banks, that's when we see a lot um, of the performance in the share prices. Yes, it's worth pointing out, if I could just add to that, the uh, long-term nature of what we do. Um, you know, we're not, we don't consider ourselves as traders of pieces of paper, but more as owners of companies over the long run, um, hence the tortoise beating the hare. Um, our average holding period is right around four or five years, um, and one of the companies in the portfolio we've held consistent, consistently, albeit in different um, position sizes, for, for 22 years now. So uh, again, going back to the attraction of the asset class, um, we can hold those companies because they, they, they can continue to, to grow and they can uh, double, triple and more in market value terms and, and, and our investors can, can, can benefit from that over a multi-year period. Um, I think another thing that we haven't touched on, which may be of, of, of interest to listeners, is our approach to ESG, which again fits very nicely um, with that longer term perspective. That was actually going to be my next question, actually around ESG. And again, getting back to some of the key differences between small and mid-cap stocks and large-cap stocks, is there the, the space for engagement with these with these companies the way there might be, say, with a very large um, company? Um, is there even the space in their balance sheet or their capability or their staffing to and even make a change in response to engagement? And uh, really, particularly under a time of intense pressure like now. Sure, no, it's a great question. Um, I think we've seen a meaningful shift over the last three to five years um, uh, I think Alex would would agree that that if you if you roll back a few years, um, interest from small and mid cap businesses in ESG um, issues was minimal for the reasons that you outline. Uh, really, around um, you know scarcity of resources, they just didn't have people to 
um, to, to look at some of these issues. Um, you know, an example that I that I use is that there's a, a company that we own that makes a well-known uh, lubricant used uh, for everything from sort of car engines to bicycles to uh, industrial machinery. Um, and we had the CEO in um, five years ago when we started talking about some ESG-related issues. And he said, look, Mark, um, in the nicest possible way, I'm not interested in any of this. I'll do the minimum amount required by law um, and, and, and no more, which obviously was a rather disappointing response. You fast forward five years and that same CEO um, has now, you know, is now espousing the virtues of ESG uh, and his product with regards to ESG by, for example, extending the life of machinery that would otherwise be scrapped. Um, championing the the, the uh, project they have ongoing to reduce the amount of uh, aluminum and plastic in the in the cans that they create, and so on. So the point really is just to illustrate the sea change there. Um, I think that you know from our perspective, um, what we're really looking for with regards to ESG, what we really want is sustainable businesses, and hopefully, you know, what, as we've been talking the last twenty minutes or so. Um, you know, there is the, the, one of the themes that's come through is the, is the long-term nature of our investments. Again, to sort of quote uh, Warren Buffett, you know, you want to invest in a stock um, that if the market closed for five years and you weren't able to, you know, you came back five years later, that business would A, exist and B, be stronger and bigger and more profitable. Well, we feel uh, exactly that, you know, those are exactly the types of businesses that we want to invest in. And that ESG is an important component in that sustainability. Um, I think gone are the days where where people felt that uh, a consideration of ESG uh, really came at the expense of alpha generation. Uh, I think now, you know, the majority of people believe, certainly we do, that our principal uh, aim in, in, in the strategies that we run is to generate alpha and that ESG is an important um, component uh, of, of, of that. So, um, I'd say the you know to, to sum up the the approach to companies um, we at uh, Federated Hermes have been you know doing involved in ESG for a couple of decades now. It is of course uh, currently very fashionable, but but we were you know we were doing it long long before it was it was fashionable, um, and so we have a deep expertise. So uh, some of the companies that um, that we look at are actually coming to us saying. To your point, that we can't afford to have a 200-page sustainability report, but if we were to allocate somebody to do this, to look at this and improve disclosure, um, and consider some of the factors that you're suggesting, three days a week, for example, um, you know, what what would the key areas be uh, that you would suggest that, 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 that we start looking at? And so we can say, well, competitors in your space, you know, focus on whether it be board structure or supply chain or um, uh, whatever is specific to that particular industry and point them in the right direction. So again, it becomes much more collaborative. Uh, I think that the you know the the other the other element um, to the to to this is that you, you know you could you could say cynically that you know that that, that some of these management teams have realised there's a lot of um, money behind ESG investing. Um, I think that would be overly harsh, um, but I certainly think that. Uh, the appetite for engaging in some of these issues um, has materially improved over the last few years, and we're in a position to help companies, um, you know, prioritise where they where they might spend their time. Yeah, it's worth mentioning that we have Will Pomroy, who is 
uh, attached to our team who is a dedicated full-time lead engager whose job it is to set agendas for each company with specific KPIs. Uh, and we think we've made quite a lot of progress with this. We have um, an investment in a boat maker and we've spent a lot of time discussing with management um, their uh, strategy for end of life of boats or potentially electric propulsion op options on newer models. And how about the exposure of SMID companies to geopolitical risk? There's a lot of attention on trade tensions right now, um, as well as exposure perhaps when there's a lower dollar to exports, imports. It, there seems to be some of these macro issues really do filter through to investor sentiment. Are the companies in your universe as exposed to these factors? So the uh, to put it in context, um, the domestic earnings of the S&P 500, i.e the earnings that are generated in North America, around 53%, something like that. Um, in smaller mid-cap land, uh, that percentage of domestic um, revenues is, is higher, somewhere between 70 and 80%, uh, depending on whether you're talking about mid or small. So in simple terms, the smaller the company, the higher uh, their levels of domestic revenue. So um, with regards to geopolitical issues, um, you know, clearly that more domestic bias insulates them somewhat from, uh, for example, a you know the the, the U.S. China trade tensions. Um, some of our businesses manufacture in the U.S. and they sell in the U.S. and and, and really don't have a huge global presence. Um, I think there is an opportunity for some of our businesses um, to benefit from the onshoring of um, manufacturing back to the U.S. I think. Perhaps what the pandemic has highlighted is the limitations of um, a just-in-time uh, stock and inventory system uh, where something like COVID-19 happens, um, then there can be material delays um, and complications arising from that that affect your supply chain. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't say that the our, our companies are immune from... Um, uh, are immune from from all geopolitical risk, um, but they certainly have a more domestic focus. Now, I suppose the, the next question is, you know, that, that, that may be a good or a bad thing, particularly um, as we come into November, there's a presidential election, um, which with only a few months to run, uh, it's un unclear which way that's going to, to fall. And turning now to Outlook, um, I think it's fair to say that perhaps this asset class has a bit of an image problem um, in that there is definitely perhaps not the same investor excitement around it. At least that's one perception. Um, is that the case that investors have, are overlooking the smaller mid-cap segment or is it just that in cycles it tends to go in and out of favour? Um, and w what is your outlook um, maybe based on that or, or not? Sure. So um, I think you're. I think you're right that I think for many European investors, um, many of the many European investors choose to get their exposure simply by buying a, uh, a you know a large cap tracker. I think it's well documented that it is hard to generate um, sustainable alpha in the large cap space. Um, conversely, uh, that isn't the case in in smaller mid for the reasons we outlined. Specifically, the the much lower coverage um, by the sell side. I think. Um, there are 50-something analysts covering Apple, last time I looked, um, whereas for many of our businesses, you know, there may be two, three, four regional brokers, uh, a couple of uh, 
companies in the portfolio currently have no sell-side coverage at all. So um, if we are doing what we, we should be doing and, and uncovering these early, um, that allows us to, to, to get in an attractive entry point. And as Alex says, ride this um, uh, journey, if you like, to them being discovered um, more, more, more embraced, more enthusiastically by the sell side, and the consequent increase in, in in stock price that can accrue. But I think, in terms, of, I think, I think you know, this is a very exciting asset class um, from my perspective uh, because it combines uh, the ability for uh, you know for company to, to to invest in companies that grow uh, with a very solid. Um, Frame, framework uh, from a from a from a legal perspective, which you know perhaps is not always there uh, in other parts of the world. So an attractive combination of both uh, you know financials that you can trust, a legal system that you can you can trust, and and the ability for these businesses to to grow significantly over time, um, as well as a a research environment which is uh, poorer than you know in 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 the large cap. Uh, arena so uh, an, a really interesting asset class and if you look back at the returns um, in absolute and relative terms um, over the past decade or so you know you can see that you can see that come through so we are excited by the valuations we see in small and mid cap and covid will pass whether or not we get a vaccine uh, and as we go into um, a phase where we ha- see the economic scarring that's produced by um, a recession. There is a huge opportunity for our businesses, which are the stronger types of businesses, to gain market share over the competitive in the competitive environment. On that note, it's time to sound the closing bell. But before we do, I'd like to thank Mark Sherlock, Head of U.S. Equities and Lead Portfolio Manager of our U.S. SMID Capability, and Alex Knox, a Portfolio Manager for U.S. Equities, for joining me today. Thank you so much, Mark and Alex. That leads me to present to you my key takeaways from today's conversation. So what did we learn? I think first we learned that small and mid-cap area in the U.S. remains undercovered and underappreciated by industry analysts. Second, it seems that sometimes the stocks with a durable competitive advantage may be perceived as dull, but actually it might be better to be the slow and steady tortoise instead of the rather more sensational hare. And thirdly, it's very clear that there is still room for ESG principles to be taken into account in this asset class. And finally, let me end our podcast as I always do with the podcast recommendation. This time it's personal. Some time ago, I made a commitment to be more than just an ally in the drive to expand the diversity in finance and amplify some less, lesser known voices. I've just launched a separate series called the 50 Faces podcast, which highlights the riches and diversity of the world of investment by focusing on its people and their stories. Check it out on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I'll be back next month with another episode of Fundamentals. In the meantime, if you enjoyed this podcast and don't want to miss upcoming episodes, please subscribe to the Federated Hermes podcast channels Amplified and Here and Now. You'll find these channels on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Play. Until then, I'm Ethan Devitt, Head of Investment Ireland at The Firm. Thank you for listening to Fundamentals. Thank you for listening to the Federated Hermes podcast. If you found it interesting and would like to listen to more podcasts from the International Business of Federated Hermes, 
please visit our website. Our podcasts are also available to download on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. These podcasts are for informational purposes only, and the views, information or opinions expressed therein are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the company and its employees. Performance should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All performance mentioned is historical. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results and investors may not recover the full amount invested.